meeting and then Pastor Brendan will bring the message to us. Thanks. Our reading this morning is from Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and we'll read the first 18 verses. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And may God bless that reading from his word. Thanks so much, Bruce. Hi, everyone. I'm Pastor Brendan. Uh, you probably know me if you don't. Welcome. It's glad to have you here for the first time. It's, it's fantastic for you to be here. Um, today we're talking about the fact that God made us. But what does that mean? And who are we in the light of that? Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into God's word. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the direction it gives us, the clarity it gives us about about creation and about uh, the creation of us. Um, We ask you to open up our hearts to what you have to say through your word today, Lord, and open up your word to us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's a Greek historian uh, whose name is Plutarch from the first century AD, sort of a contemporary of the apostle Paul, um, and he wrote a lot But perhaps his most famous contribution to to lasting thought is a a paradox called the ship of Theseus. Uh, Some of you might know of this, but Plutarch tells the story of uh, the Greek hero Theseus and the ship that that belonged to him, something like the the ship I've thrown in the background of our PowerPoint today. Um, He says it was a ship that was so greatly prized, so loved, that over its lifetime, this ship, 
Um, every time uh, a single board was broken or rotten, it was repaired and replaced plank for plank with a new one. And eventually, over a long enough period of time, the, the ship was composed entirely of new timbers. And the philosophers would scratch their chins and ask, if every part of the ship has been replaced, is it still the ship of Theseus? Is it the same ship if every part of it has been replaced? An English philosopher, Thomas Hobbes, complicated this matter even further 1,500 years later. And it's a fun complication. So I need you to imagine this with me. Imagine a ship, and over time, the ship's owner has cause to replace pieces of this ship. There's damage, uh, there's wear, and every time he goes to a scrapyard, he sells that broken part, he buys a new one, he replaces it in his ship. Eventually, his ship is built entirely out of components that have been purchased to replace those original parts. Now, unbeknownst to this ship owner, the master of the scrapyard is a skilled craftsman as well, and he has actually the capacity and the skill to repair those broken parts individually, to, to restore them to working order. And each time a part comes in, he lovingly restores it and then keeps it. And eventually, once the ship's owner has replaced all the, part, the portions of his original ship, the master of the scrapyard has enough there to make a whole ship from everything that has been replaced. So the question then is, which of these two ships, the one composed entirely of replacement parts, or the one composed entirely of the original parts that no longer belongs to the guy who traded it in bit by bit, which of those ships is the real original ship of Theseus, or is neither of them the original, or are both the original in some way? This is not an easy question to answer, which is why it's been kicked around for a couple of thousand years. Um, but it is an important question, because we're talking about the nature of what a thing is, it's the nature of being, and it's one thing for me to say, or for you to say someone else, that God made you. But it's another thing to examine that deeply and then admit we might have a pretty good idea of who we mean by God even. We might know what we mean by made, but what exactly did he make when he made you? What are you made for, from, of? Did he make a, like a pure and excellent being that someone else keeps ruining? Or did he make a broken and flawed thing that is by its design prone to failure? Did he make the thing that you were meant to be but you aren't yet? Or did he make the thing that you were but no longer are? What did God make when he made you? And if you're the philosophical type of person, then these questions are very exciting. If you're not that type of person, then you're feeling a gut reaction to recoil away from this topic and not to think about it. But I encourage you not to obey that reaction. This is important stuff and talks about who you are, what your nature is before God, and about a purpose so important that we can't live our life without it. And people in our world, in our society, and in our families who are self-destructing because they don't know who they are or what they are for. And so when you say to them, you're a child of God, you need to be ready to answer when they turn around and ask back, what does that mean? So the simple answer then to that question, what does that mean, when someone asks, who are they? You could say, well, let me ask the question again. If you ask the question, who am I? The simple answer to that is, well, I'm me. I'm this individual. I have things I like. I have things I don't like. I'm not anyone else but me. I change a little bit over time, but I am this personality. That's obvious enough, right? That's usually what you mean when you're talking about me. 
obvious enough, but kind of false. We're just not that simple. Imagine how easy it would be to be that simple, to just be one person with likes and desires and dreams that just carried on in that direction. Imagine what it would be like to never do something you knew you shouldn't do. And then have to ask yourself after, why did I do that? That's not me. Or to never have to struggle with a decision because you really want option A, but you also really want option B. We're at war with ourselves constantly, and any explanation of what we are and what we are made of and for has to take into account that conflict. So let's look at how we might define what it means to be a person and to be a person created by God, since this answer is not immediately obvious. Now, this is one of these questions that has interesting dividing lines in, in major Eastern and Western culture. This is not a hard and fast rule. You will find plenty of wonderful exceptions. But broadly speaking, the Western world has a bigger idea of individualism, and the Eastern world has a bigger idea of relational definition of people. So in the West, you'd say, who are you? You're an individual. You have your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions. You have fears. You have faith. You have reason. Ultimately, those are the things that define who you are. That's the Western idea of being. You and other individuals, you participate together in this world, sometimes helping, sometimes harming each other. Each of us is individually accountable before God for the things we do. And the Bible talks about how we are as individuals, creations of God, and it celebrates that idea. It's kind of little, but that's all right. I'll read it for you. From Matthew 10, 30. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. This idea that God knows you with meticulous detail. You're not one of a, of a stamped sort of template. Matthew 10, 37 says, Anyone who loves their father or their mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's a call to prioritize yourself before God, your relationship with God, as superior to your familial relation. God knows you specifically and with meticulous detail. You are individually loved by him. And ultimately... You're individually accountable to him. Even more so than in regards to our own blood kin to whom we are pretty accountable as well. Who will hold us to account. Now at the same time, there is a communal, familial idea of who we are together. You might say, who are you? Well, you're the child of your mother and father. You're a proud attending member of Sunnybank District Baptist Church. You're an Australian citizen. You're part of the international church, the Bride of Christ. You're defined by these relationships. And this too is a biblical idea. It's what we might call relational identity. From Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now this is a, a very similar quote to the one we had from Matthew, but you see the subtle change of emphasis. This includes denying yourself as well. In this case... We see Christ saying that your actual identity is supposed to rest in your relationship to God and your individuality is less important than that. To become a disciple is to be defined by relationship to Christ. And Psalm 127, 4-5 has this fun line, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. For this psalm's purpose... The children may be people, but their, their individual peoplehood, their ambitions are irrelevant. But the picture this psalm is painting, these children are an aspect of their father. They're defined 
by their father. The father is defined by having them. They have a functional purpose in, in fleshing out who the father is and what his relationships are, and that makes him what he is. So there's a, a relational definition, not just an individual one that we have to wrestle with. And this one is harder for Westerners to grasp because it is not our specialty. And I still grapple with it myself. We are primarily individualist in the West, like in Australia and America. Our Chinese brothers and sisters in the, uh, the other congregations and those who join us here, they are much better at it. They understand this better because they've had a better, better taste of both cultures. So when I introduce myself to someone, I say, I'm Brendan Cottom. I give my given name first because that's my individual name. That's the most defining thing about me. When my friend Yu Hao introduces himself, he puts his family name first, Yu, because his immediate relationships are the most defining thing about that culture. This is not a trivial difference. This is a, makes big differences in culture and it's worth knowing. Take this sentence for example. Mom, Dad, I'm dropping out of my medicine course and I'm going to share an apartment in Melbourne with my band. Now, this is not exclusively divided down cultural lines. There's plenty of overlap. But if my parents heard me say that line, let's say that I was studying medicine at the time, um, they'd probably think something like, well, this is probably going to fail, but he'll learn some lessons, he'll grow as a person, he'll come back with some stories. They'd be hesitant, but ultimately encouraging, because it seemed like something I wanted to do and was devoted towards. If uh, my friend Yu Hao, my friend Jesse's parents had heard that line, I expect they'd have very different thoughts. This is going to damage him. He's disrespecting our wishes. He has responsibilities here. It's a fundamentally relational response. One is not necessarily right or wrong, but one has a different idea of who someone is. They might say he's individuating too fast and too much, and that's painful. Now, conversely, relational cultures are very tightly bonded. Often you'll find a situation where multiple generations are living in the same house together, and that works just fine. When mum and dad retire, hooray, they're coming to live with you in your spare room. Not spare anymore. And that's fine, and that's expected. And up until very recently, it's just starting to shift in the West now, in this century, in this country. When you turned 18, <laughs> that was like, congratulations, son, you're a man now. Here's a, a can of beer, registration to vote. Get out. <laughs> I'm turning this room into a den. Um, I was working on a shearing station when I was nine. You're a late bloomer, but that's okay. Get out in the world. Um, Mum would be measuring up the room to become a presently imaginary sewing room. Mom, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Nothing, honey. How's that band going? Do you get many, many bands discovered in Brisbane, or would you have to go further south? What do you think? We're in a, a globalizing world, and these extremes are starting to merge. People understand them a little better. There's a lot of overlap. But understanding this is actually a, a huge insight into people. And ultimately, it really shouldn't surprise us, because we have a God who made us in his image, and... That God is fundamentally three and one. He's ultimately relational and expresses himself in individualism. He has individual natures to each member of the, member of the Trinity, but one shared essence, one divine nature that defines them all. The definition of a father is that he has children. That's the only thing that word tells you. The definition of a son is that he is a child 
with a parental relationship. That's the only thing that word tells us. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is breath. It's inside, it's behind, it's around something else. All these are intimately relational ideas, so it makes sense that who we are should include both this individual idea and this relational idea. So now we've scratched the surface of what it means to be a person. So let's go deeper. We know that what it means to be created by God is to have this individual identity and to have a relational identity with people around us. But what about within ourself? Remember the thought experiment we just had about the ship of Theseus there, two ships, one made entirely of repairs, one made entirely of original pieces. Let me get a, get a show of hands for anyone who's bold enough. Who thinks the real ship is the one that is owned by the sailor but is made of all the replacement parts? Raise a hand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this one, the other one, or don't know. Okay, that's this one. Yeah, a couple, a couple of hands up. Yeah, that's all right. You're not going to be, I'm not going to kick you out if you, you know, that's right. Who thinks that the real ship is the one made of all the original parts that have been reassembled in the scrapyard? Quite a few hands. Quite a few hands. And who has no idea and just wants to know what all this is about? Yeah, okay. That's fine. <laughs> Would it interest you to know that every cell in your body is replaced every 10 years? Almost every cell. That's not strictly true. Uh, your cortical neurons and your tooth enamel does not replace itself, so be good to your brain and teeth. Um, but everything else is replaced. So when you look down at your hands, and you might say, are these the hands I used to hold my child when they were first born 10, 20, 15 years ago? Your answer can either be, no, these are very different hands, they're composed of entirely different matter, they've been replaced. Or alternatively, yes, they are the same because it's not the substance that makes the hands. It's what they've done, what they do, it's the spirit that animates them. So now we're, we're not looking at being defined by our individual identity or by our relational identity. We're, we're looking at being defined by functional identity, what things do. And these hands... They are my hands, not because when I was born with them, someone labeled them Brendan's hands. They're my hands because they're the tools I use when I have to do the things that hands do that I've been using my whole life, even though they've been replaced bit by bit a couple of times through that duration. Their function is what defines them. This is important because this is an understanding of who we are that hasn't been taught very well for the last hundred years, and our world is suffering for it badly. Men and women today define themselves individually and relationally, but they don't understand defining themselves functionally by the things they do. So likewise, if you think of a husband and a wife who have been married for 10 years, 10 years after the marriage, all those cells have been replaced. They're almost entirely new physical people, but they are still husband and wife. And more interestingly, 30 minutes before they said their vows, they were not husband and wife, and then after they are, without having changed any of that physical matter. Not because their cells are the same or different. The substance in this case doesn't matter. It's the essence that's changed. They're now married. Their function is different. Their function is to engage life together, to come, um, whether, come hell or high water, to carve out a space in the world, to raise a family, to look out for each other, and to have affection and intimacy with each other that excludes all others. The only thing that changes is their function in the world, but they are now defined differently. It's an ultimate difference. 
It becomes very clear how quickly a world that doesn't understand this is quick to dismiss marriage as a piece of paper, to uh, embrace, say, uh, an easy divorce culture, to see it maybe as a mere state of love that needs to be approved and then can fade away when the state of love goes. Now, likewise, Adam was a son of God. He was created to be in harmony with his creator and to be in obedience to his will. But when he disobeyed God and he fell, he stopped being defined as a son of God and started being defined as a sinner. His relationship to God changed because his function changed. He was now someone who disobeys God. He didn't sin because God withdrew. God withdrew that blessing because Adam became a sinner, and that's important. Because sin is bound up all through Scripture with this imagery as an uncleanness, a cancer, a sort of a spiritual force lurking in your soul. This is imagery to help us understand it, but we can't take it too far. We talk about it like it's a slimy black ooze of spiritual stuff that sits on your soul and God can't touch it or he'll get icky. So he needs Jesus' blood to wash it away. But God is stronger than anything in creation. And if sin was like that, if it was a thing that could actually be washed away in some physical or spiritual physical sense, God could just blast it away with cosmic power. Adam would sin, God would go, no, you didn't. And that would be the end of it. But that's not the way it works. Sin is a change in our definition. It changes what we are. It changes us from being obedient to God to being rebels from God. That's not something that is dolloped on top of us. That is a change from top to bottom of who we are. It's a change of functional identity. Imagine a man who is tempted to steal a car. Is he a thief? Not strictly. He hasn't stolen the car yet. Once he steals the car, he becomes a thief. But even if he's overcome with guilt, and he gives the car back, and he fills it up with premium to make up for his mistake... He has changed. He is now a thief. His function has changed from one who does not steal to one who does steal. And he can go 10 years without stealing, but still, he's definitionally a thief. Likewise, someone who murders only has to murder once to become a murderer. And one person only needs to sin once to become a sinner. Now, you can make the argument maybe that If he never steals again for another 50 years, maybe he's not a thief anymore. But I wouldn't suggest making that argument to the person he stole the car from. The offended party is always going to remember him as the guy who stole my car. This is why infidelity in marriage is so destructive, because once your spouse stops being your lover forsaking all others and starts being your lover who once cheated on you, that relationship is forever changed. Because your lover has forever changed. And you change too, no longer just husband or wife, but a betrayed husband or wife. And no amount of justification, it was just physical, I was just lonely, I was drunk and they pressured me. None of that stops the functional identity from warping as a result. You simply cannot ignore it, and if you do, then it will take itself out in other ways. And Jesus takes us a step further. He highlights that functional identity is not even about actions. It's about who you are at that core level. I think I might have gone too far. Functional identity. Yes, there we go. Um, Matthew 5.21. You have heard that it was said... 
to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You have heard it said, oops, I skipped a couple of verses there. Um, but I say to you, anyone who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. Uh, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, these verses are not about action. They are not saying that the action of having lustful thoughts is as bad as the action of committing adultery, or the action of having hateful thoughts is as bad as the action of murder. As far as an impact uh, scenario is concerned, would you rather be hated or murdered? Probably hated. That's fair. Jesus is not measuring the impact of an action. He is talking about accountability before God. And it is your identity that matters there. Your actions merely describe that identity to the world. If you hate someone in your heart, where your intentions live, where your soul is anchored to your body, you are a murderer. Because if the circumstances were right, you would do it. And you don't get a pass on that just because you've never been in the right dark alley at the right time. You're a murderer because the capacity for murder is in you. You can prove it to the world by acting on it, or you might never get the chance to act on it. But if you have that kind of hate in you, you're a murderer by your identity because that's what you do. Likewise, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's not an adulterer because he has committed mental adultery. He is an adulterer because if he was in a discreet hotel room in another city with this woman and he knew that they wouldn't get caught, he would go through with it and stay the night. Even if he goes blind and never actually looks lustfully at another woman, he is still an adulterer in identity and nature because he would do that. That's what our functional identity is. It wasn't the fruit in the garden that made Adam and Eve fall. It did not poison them. It wasn't a physical toxin. They heard the temptation of the snake. They listened. They made themselves into the kind of people who would betray God. And if God had slapped the fruit out of their hand, it wouldn't have mattered. Because they were sinners the moment their nature accommodated their desire to sin. It's not enough to stop sinning. You need to stop being a sinner, and to do that, you have to be born again. Now, there's one more aspect of identity I want to touch on here, and that's intentional identity or purpose identity. Something can be defined by what it was made to do. An axe is made to chop, usually to chop wood. But anyone who's been camping has probably used an axe to tap in a few tent pegs from now and then. Someone else is using the mallet, you don't want to wait. You flip around the hatchet, you use the back, and you make a hammer of it. And some campers have a hatchet that almost never chops wood, but frequently does the work of a hammer. Functionally, it's kind of become a hammer, because that's what it does. But its purpose will never change. It was made to be an axe. It was made to chop. And if it never chops wood, it never fulfills that purpose. So to have a purpose, something needs to have a creator. And that's what we see in today's passage. Take these verses. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. 
when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You're made by God for a purpose. He has an intention for every day of your life and you were specifically made for that purpose. And the tragedy of our sin is that our functional identity, the types of things we do and will do and would do if we had the opportunity, it's so painfully mismatched from our purpose identity, from what we were made to do. We're made to worship God, we're made to obey his commands, we're made to love one another. We're made to do all those things. And those who don't know God, they know they are meant to do something more, they just don't know where to find it. They know they're supposed to have some significant purpose, but they can't find it. And if we find our identity in something other than the reason for which we were made, then we're on a path to self-destruction. There are people who work so hard to set themselves apart from others, to define themselves, to escape the shadow of their parents and the rules they grew up under, who try and build themselves up entirely out of individual identity, and then they break free into a void of cold, lonely, unrelatable darkness where no one can talk to them about how they feel. These are rock stars and movie icons who annihilate themselves with drugs just trying to feel connected to something again. There are people who are so tightly wound up in relationships that they lose the idea of who they are entirely into the people around them. You have mothers who will sabotage their children so that they will never leave because she is a ghost without someone to parent. You have young men who feel so indistinguishable and valueless from among their workmates and their classmates and their peers that they turn to evil and they would rather die in infamy and gunfire than go on living. And you have students who define themselves so sharply by the career they are pursuing that when they fail that class, they kill themselves. You have men who can work in an industry for 30 years which suddenly folds up and becomes obsolete and the skill they were identified as having no longer has a purpose in the world and they kill themselves. We are the only species that can conceive of purpose and we're the only species that commits suicide because without one we are painfully prone towards the other. God has made you and he has made you with the purpose. If you had no purpose, he would have taken you home. He's made you to have a function that matched his character. He's made you to be in rich, fulfilling relationships with people around you and to have an individual destiny that no one else can perform. That is who you are before God. That's an eternal truth. And C.S. Lewis has a fantastic quote in his excellent book, The Problem of Pain. He says this, The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you had never seen a key. And the key itself is a strange thing if you had never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance. Or a key to unlock one of those doors in the house with many mansions. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. That's an amazing truth. Not only that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart, but that part of God is 
shaped like us. So in some way, he is meant to fit with us in a way that no one else does. We were made for him, by him. And it's our sacred duty to spend our lives becoming more and more like the person God made us to be. That's why we've been given a conscience. Because a conscience isn't just a little voice in your head that tells you right from wrong. That's too simple. It does more than that. Our conscience isn't quite the same as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reforms and perfects our conscience, but they're not the same. The Holy Spirit is part of God living in you. Your conscience is a part of you. And it's the reason that everyone ends up feeling confused and divided with ourselves all the time. Our mind is time-bound. It's here and now, and it can speculate about what's to come. But really, its interests are in what can I get right now to satisfy my needs right now in this moment. But your conscience is the voice of everything that you could be. It's the voice of potential that God has crafted in you. In some way, it's the voice of God's intention carved into your being. When you know you're going to be late for work like you always are, it tells you you can do better than this. You were made for better than this. When you set a goal to do better in the future, to go jog every morning, to read more, to work harder, it says, yes, this is the stuff that you were meant to do. And you are moving in the right direction to be more like the thing you were made to be. When you fight with a loved one, your conscience tells you, fix this. You're out of harmony with the people who partially define you. If you fix this now, it will be fixed. If you don't fix this, you will look back over the battlefield of this relationship 20 years later and think, I should have fixed that. Your conscience isn't perfect, but it's almost always right. And if you ever doubt it, you can and should pray. And the Holy Spirit, you will find, usually takes its side. A teenage guy might say, should I date this girl? She doesn't believe in God, but I feel like she's close. And maybe if she'll come along to church a few times while we go out, what does my conscience say? No! I'd better pray. God, I know I'm not supposed to, out to date outside the faith, but maybe this time, no! You will find your conscience and the Holy Spirit are happy to gang up on you. It's a good problem to have. You used to be able to ignore your conscience when you wanted to do something stupid, but once you have the Holy Spirit, you're outnumbered. It becomes much harder. You can consult your conscience renewed by the Holy Spirit. That is what it is there for. And if you sit for just a moment and think, what can I do to become more like the person God made me to be? What am I already hearing from myself about what I'm doing wrong because God's written it on my heart? You will get an answer. You know what you're supposed to do. You know if you're being weak or you're pushing people away or if you're doing things you're not meant to do. You know it because you have the voice of your potential in your head howling at you whenever you sacrifice some of that potential for a temporary gain. But that voice is the tool of God to bring you your individual identity, your relational identity, your functional identity, all of those things in line with who he made you to be. So before I pray, I'm going to give you a minute just to reflect. You may have noticed on your seats 
There are these little strips of paper. Some of we ran out of strips of paper before we finished the whole place. Some of them have contact cards that we have. That's fine too. But I'd like you to take a minute to reflect and write down there one thing that you should change or fix or do better or stop doing. If it's a private thing, then you don't have to write it specifically. You can write something ambiguous. And this week, act on it. Stop it or do it or respond to it in the way that you know you're supposed to. The conscience in your head that the Holy Spirit is reinforcing has been telling you to do all this time. Maybe you've never had the Holy Spirit in you before and that thing that you're supposed to do is come to know God for the first time. I would love that to be written down. But write down that thing. Write down some way that a pastor from this church can contact you and we'll contact you and encourage you sometime in the next week or two just to see how you're going following up on this thing. And then put it in one of the little contact card boxes at the back of the church there. It is worth doing to act on something like this. You will feel amazing because nothing feels as good as being who you were meant to be and getting closer to that. You're made by God. Not just as a person with a name or as a member of a family, but as a relational individual with a purpose in God's mind. So I'm going to give you that moment now to reflect and to write, and then I'll pray. Go ahead. Father God, you made us. You know our thoughts. You know our actions. You know what you made us to do. You know what you have planned for every day of our lives. And it's our prayer that we won't just be content just to be what we are, but we'll be fired up and inspired and driven by your spirit to be who you want us to be. May your Holy Spirit speak brightly in our heart. May our conscience conform to your ways and draw us onward to you. And may our identity, now and forever, rest in the destiny that you have given us. We ask this now in your son Jesus' name. Amen.